0: welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading, and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today, I'm talking to Maggie Hamilton. Maggie is the author of over a dozen books, including What Men Don't Talk About, What's Happening to Our Girls, and What's Happening to Our Boys. Maggie Hamilton, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Greg. It's great to be
0: with you. Today, we're going to talk about your new book, When We Become Strangers. Now, that's a really intriguing title, Maggie, and titles are meant to tell us something about the book. What does it tell us about this book, its contents? and its propositions?
1: I think there's been a lot of talk, Greg, about loneliness. And I really wanted to understand in depth what that meant. And what I very quickly came to realize is that we're living as if we're exiled from things that are really, really essential to what makes us thrive as human beings. So, The idea of talking about strangers is that sense that we're all in landscapes that are not necessarily giving us what we need to thrive as human beings. So there's a real sense of kind of estrangement, not just feeling lonely, um, but much more than that. It's not just a connection with those outside of ourselves, but in a sense, kind of knowing who we are as individuals and what we personally need to feed us as human beings. And that is, that is a nuanced thing. It's different for each of us. That's why I wanted to use the word strangers, because I hoped it would have a, a kind of deeper resonance for people.
0: You also talk about isolation, And the way that these things have a way of creeping into our lives, a a creeping isolation, I think you call it. How does this happen? And why are we so unaware of these creeping hazards?
1: I think it is because it is that creeping process that it happens little by little. And it's happening to us in all sorts of ways. The fact now um, with technology, we don't need to uh, ring somebody up, we can text. And now with text, we don't use words, we can just use an emoji. And what we know from human connection face to face is that a vast majority of communication is happening through the micro emotions, say on our face, um, on, on our body la- wider body language, so that we are picking up on all sorts of nuances that might not be evident if we're just texting. It's in the way that we now see connection as an email, rather than making the time to have a coffee with somebody. And we've become so keen on kind of capturing moments of our lives. It's almost as if we're not there. And in the glorious times when we were all going off having holidays freely, Um, So often you see people just capturing the photo of being in a location, but there was no sense of connecting with the people and sense of place. So all these things start to create a withdrawal from human interaction.
0: Do you think we're in danger of losing that ability to respond to, I guess, the physical cues, those facial expressions that communicate more than a text ever could?
1: Absolutely, Greg. And we're seeing this already with the I generation, which, um, where they are finding face to face communications very hard because basically these emerging kids have not had very much uh, experience at one to one, you know, face to face conversation, which seems really weird to those of us who are a bit older. And this has a lot of implications because if you're going into the workplace, and you're having to deal with difficult customers or, you know, most workplaces have, have at least one or two tricky people. It's almost a, a, a formula, isn't it? Let's face it. You've got to have that. Uh,
0: only one or two tricky people.
1: That's... Well, that's right, Greg. You know, so how do you deal with those uh, people? Um, how do you deal with difficult family situations? And so this is already happening and it is a real concern Because what it means is that it it diminishes our ability to be part of community and community is what we are programmed for.
0: If we can just backtrack for a moment, you used the term I generation. Yeah. Firstly, who is the I generation? And you also say in your book that they are the most affected generation. So who are they they and why are they the most affected?
1: The iGen are those who who were born between 1995 and 2012. So they're really the ones who are kind of starting to emerge into the workforce now, and obviously some are younger than that. And they are the most affected by this whole sense of estrangement of loneliness studies are already showing they are the most lonely generation on the planet. They are lonelier than people who are 50, 60, 70, 80. And this is really quite shocking. Um, And they are this way because they have been uh, spending their childhoods basically connected to devices Um, and playing in their bedrooms rather than outside. And in fact, a recent study was done in the UK, which uh, pointed to the fact that these iGen kids were spending less time outside than your average adult British prisoner, which is extremely concerning, I think.
0: It's a shocking statistic. There are actually so many topics covered in your book, Uh, It's almost an entire universe of pitfalls that we can unsuspectingly fall into. But what I see as the central message of when we become strangers is is what you term hyperconnectivity. It's this thing that we now experience, but you also say that we're actually more alone and lonely than ever before. How can we be hyperconnected and yet still lonely and isolated? How can that be?
1: It, look, it does sound like a conundrum, and I think part of the answer lies in hyper. That we've become so hyper in the way we live, the amount of information we are now getting in a day far surpasses anything that uh, we experienced in previous generations. So, and and the the amount of people we are actually communicating with in that wider sense in a day is huge so what that is forcing us to do is to kind of retreat to a space where we feel that we can at least be in control but this is this is creating a lot of loneliness and we see this um, in the way that we are now spending huge amounts of time clicking and scrolling in the day we see this on our trains and our buses so For those of us who are still going into work, um, you know, that process into work is not about noticing other people on the platform, noticing the fact that it's spring, summer, autumn or winter, um, thinking about the day, noticing things that are happening as we're going along in the train. Then at work, uh, we tend to be through the way work is structured and the workplace Is physically laid out open space and of course now with the way we are managing our workspaces where often we don't actually have a dedicated workspace so people have their headphones on so that that informal communication that was going on in the workplace where we were picking up on other stuff that was happening that might impact our job that is disappearing then when we get home we fall into streaming which becomes very addictive And we don't bother to eat out because we can have Uber Eats. And so through all these opportunities to seemingly make life easier, we're disconnecting. And when we look at streaming, for instance, um, the studies are now showing that increasingly people are are cancelling time with friends if they're getting towards the end of a series and wanting to, to binge and finish it. And look, I'm sure we've all been tempted to do that, but I think there isn't something inside, a lot of us still thankfully says, no, that's absolutely not right, you know. But this is happening increasingly, particularly with younger generations. So you start to put all that together and you see that like our iGen kids, we mightn't be retreating into the bedroom, but we are retreating into our own homes and our own spaces. At the expense of a, a richly layered life full of connections.
0: We've talked quite a lot about the reasons behind this encroaching loneliness and isolation yeah. but, and the problems that are associated with it. But of course, your book's not all about outlining problems, it's also about finding solutions to these problems. One of the really small but interesting things, and something we've just talked about is this time spent on devices, whether it's on trains or at home streaming. Your advice is stow your device during a commute and enjoy the ride. Now, that's a great piece of advice. How do you get people to let go and actually do that?
1: Well, I think we all have to ask ourselves, is our life as rich and I would probably, an even better word, layered as we'd like? What I see as I look around me and listen to conversations, we talk constantly about being bored um, and frustrated and not being interested in. And the way through that is to grow our curiosity. So we have to become curious again. and We've got to become good and detailed observers of what's happening around us, not in a kind of homework way, but in a way of seeing with new eyes, and John O'Donohue, who um, actually looked at the Celtic way of life, he was a very interesting Irish uh, renegade, uh, Irish Catholic priest. And I remember an anecdote he told a few years back. He got the opportunity to go and study in Geneva, and he said the night he arrived, you know, after he'd thrown his suitcase on his bed in his uh, hotel. He said he went out to experience Geneva that night in all its fullness because he knew if he didn't do that, he would miss out on a lot of nuances because he said as familiarity of that city crept in, he knew there would be so many things he would never notice. And I've never forgotten that, that it's like capturing the wave of the moment so that life starts to open up for us. What we're looking for are experiences that open possibilities, doors and windows, rather than closing those doors and windows. And I think the closed doors and windows is where we're at. And really it's just about starting to open them. And I have put a lot of um, suggestions in the book Um, and hopefully there's lots of nuances for people to understand. And the great thing is that so many of these are dead simple.
0: I want to talk now about something that is central to most people, which is this idea of work and in particular yes. work and technology. Yep. Now technology is often called out as the answer to all our problems, uh, from solving work-life balance, making us more efficient and productive, helping us communicate better and faster. In one section, you, your heading reads... Technology alone is not the answer. If technology isn't the answer, then what is?
1: Oh, this is a lovely question because it gives me the opportunity to share some really quite exciting things. I think what we tend to do as human beings, we're always looking for the ultimate answer. And that's good. We need to be looking for solutions. That's how we evolve. The problem is when we find something new, We tend to pin all our hopes on that. So this is what we've done in the workplace. And so now people uh, communicate across the office by um, email, etc. And what we found, and yes, we are working from home at the moment, but let's assume we're in a a workplace where people can get into work easily and freely, is that things like the informal chats in a, a workplace situation are often those where we we make massive connections, we learn a lot. We are actually subconsciously learning about our work environment and what is needed by casual conversations that are going uh, on around us. And in fact, some companies now are reinstating cafes in their workplace because they've found that something like 75% of the chat that goes on there is useful for work and more workplaces are actually getting these cafes, allowing these cafes to be open to the general public because they're finding those casual communications that people are hearing are immensely valuable, not just because um, it might be something to do with work, but it's kind of feeding people's knowledge of what's going on around them in the wider world, if you see what I mean. It's like almost informal market research. The other thing is we were talking a moment ago about us being sensory beings, and what's happening with technology is those sensors are being shut down, but now we have a new movement uh, called biophilia, which is introducing these elements back into the workplace. So it's things like benches that we work from um, being made of recycled wood so that when you're sitting at your desk working, as your fingers touch the, the grooves of that wood, you know, your senses are being excited and soothed and nourished. Some workplaces have dappled lighting on the walls as if, you're under trees and they're using circadian lighting because we have a a rhythm and we know this when we travel overseas and we suffer from jet lag. We have a rhythm that works for us where the light changes, natural light changes during the day, changes color subtly. And so advanced workplaces are putting this in so that we're actually feeding the sensory part of ourselves and um, and as well as, as such things as informal communication. And these create a, a deep sense of delight um, that, that feeds us as human beings and make us feel like we're part of this workplace and part of something that's bigger than us.
0: That actually feeds into something that I want to ask about now, which is uh, this idea of human scale. And we've talked about things like human connection, and you've just mentioned a few, entertainment, intimacy, and that somehow these things have become dehumanised or even commodified. This is in the context of a world driven by technology. But this principle of human scale or returning to this principle of human scale, what do you mean by that term and how do we get there?
1: This is very exciting. And this really was the starting point for my book. Um, several years ago, I read about the Danish architect, Jan Gale, who I, I wasn't aware of. He's now 80. And he, he is an urban architect. And in fact, we're very aware of his uh, work in Melbourne with the beautiful alleyways and stuff like that. Anyway, as Jan came into urban architecture, it was a time when cities were high rise and freeways and they really were not people friendly. And he was kind of aware that there was a disconnect, but hadn't really any sense of of what it was about because, you know, that was the big new thing. And so he took a trip around Europe where he lived and started to really take note of where people felt comfortable and he noticed this in um, places such as Venice and places in Europe and Italy, where you have people congregating around a square, etc., meeting at night to have coffee and dance and eat and chat and promenade. And then he started to study human behavior as well. And what he found is we actually have a measurable scale at which we as human beings feel comfortable. The exciting thing about this is we can have our big modern cities with the high rise, but what we need to do at street level is to give a sense of intimacy. And he does this in a number of ways um, by making uh, streets that are purely for pedestrians, which we now have trees so that there is shade places to sit where people can pause and uh, where uh, we might sit in a little cafe outside and we may be alone, but we don't feel alone having, you know, uh, our latte because we've got all this life going around on around us. And so we can be what he calls alone together. One of the exciting things people will find in the book is all these new opportunities for us to feel connected. And who would think that in urban spaces, dense urban spaces, we can create this real sense of intimacy and connectivity. And before you were talking about hyperconnectivity, connectivity um, Greg, and I guess what we're talking about here is something more intimate, and quieter. And and what Jan says, which I love, and it makes so much sense. He says, we we know if a city is going to work properly when it can work for young children and the elderly. And he said, if it works for them, we can be pretty sure it works for everyone else. So in Copenhagen, kids are out cycling across the city with mum and dad from the age of five, By the age of 10, that city is safe enough for for children of 10 to cycle across the city by themselves. So that city becomes that child's from the age of 10. And I think this is immensely exciting. We also see it um, in places like New York, where they have the High high Line, which was um, an elevated railway. And they were going to pull it down. And then they found all these beautiful old trees and stuff that had grown up there. And now it is this incredible walkway. I've forgotten how long it is, but it's quite extensive. You might have been. Yeah,
0: I've walked. I've walked. It. Isn't it wonderful? It's a great piece of um, innovation. And it just adds this extra dimension to New York.
1: Absolutely. So that there is art there. There are buskers. You can sit. There's some more formal gardens but most of it is grasses and things that were growing there anyway it has another sense of intimacy so part of pushing back against this sense of estrangement is looking at the ways we create intimacy in the city and 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 to start to look at those places that have been unloved and breathe new life into them.
0: I actually found the experience not unlike walking through those treetop boardwalks that you sometimes get in rainforests. that same, obviously not the same sense, but uh, this kind of feeling where you could actually see the city in a different way and from a different perspective.
1: That's right. And again, it provides another of those alone together opportunities. So you could wander with a group of friends you could do it by yourself, but you wouldn't feel alone. And this is the way of the future. And I actually feel that if we could apply this human scale to everything we're doing, whether it's in the workforce, parenting, which has you know a number of fairly big challenges at the moment, in our suburbs, we start to really create something that's very exciting for the future. And this is my hope, ultimately, with the book is that it gives us a new vision of what we're capable of and actually what is within reach, because most of this is is just like a heartbeat away from where we are in our current sense of feeling a bit isolated.
0: A section of your book is devoted to what you call the MBA workplace. In that chapter, you quote Robert Schiller, who talks about the problem of business schools, and according to him, they promote an ethic of selfishness and limited accountability. Can you explain that statement and, and what is it about the MBA workplace that prompted you to write this chapter?
1: Well, what happened in the 80s is that um, our business schools were very keen to, for very good reasons, create, just as, you know, a medical school would, would produce a, a medical professional, a high-level medical professional, Um, we'd see that in science in a number of areas and they wanted to be able to do this for business so this is where their master of business came from but what has happened with this um, whole phenomenon in the workplace this idea of the professional manager that they can come into any workplace whether they know obviously they don't necessarily know that workplace but they might not even know that industry and they can come in make and, and and be the perfect manager. Um, this, this was implemented in a way that totally displaced uh, the culture of organizations and it displaced a lot of professionals in those specific areas who had very specific and precious knowledge. And because of the way the whole in master of business was marketed to the workplace. Um, it was, if, if you know, this person coming in is the answer to everybody's dreams. And I think, you know, there's a message there for all of us. There's no one person or solution to most of our complex problems today. And so this created a sense that we had this almost, um, God-like person, came in and it was very much about figures and organizational charts. And I'm not saying every master of business person in the workplace has not been useful, but it created a, a kind of uber cult of, of, of these um, professionals who would come into a workplace. They would t- totally turn the place upside down. I've, I've no doubt they did make some good changes, but many were not, and then they would disappear off to their next assignment. Most of those people did not give those workplaces any longevity, so they did not see, the, uh, they did not see out the impact of the changes they made. And this, I think, is deeply flawed. And what we're now finding is that we're living in a world of constant, massive change. And what this created was a very rigid way of dealing with issues and, and measuring. And that is really important. Don't get me wrong. It's very important. And there are, this, this is a definite skill base that is needed, but not at the expense of a whole range of other uh, skills that are needed and particularly in this time so if we and, and what this created were places where people came and went where jobs came and went and we started to create this very fluid workplace that hasn't always been helpful to work cultures because of the churn factor and this also has been very estranging for people and I look at individual examples, I look also at a lot of studies around workplace. And if if you look across the Western world at the studies of workplace satisfaction, it is alarmingly low. Well, the great thing is people are starting to wake up to the fact that we actually need a much more diverse range of skills because we are dealing with a very diverse world. And so what we're looking at now is um, the much more importance being given to creatives, um, to those who are strategic thinkers in a wider sense, um, creating a climate where um, questioning is really important and where that is actually done um, across the board. So it's not just that you can ask searching questions of somebody who might be uh, at your level, as it were, but that you're actually encouraged to ask difficult questions to those who are more senior than you. Because often in those questions um, lie new solutions or lie a warning that if we, and I don't mean to say that the person, this is not about being confrontational, But sometimes questions hang heavily on us in a workplace and but we don't feel we can ask that question because it might seem because the culture is such it's it seems impertinent if you create an inquiring workplace, then you can often foreshadow future issues and future opportunities.
0: It's interesting that you talk about these other skills, these strategic thinkers, creative thinkers, this idea of asking questions. And that leads me to the final question that I want to put to you is this idea of soft skills. You talk about soft skills. What are they and why are they important? How can they help us out of this dilemma?
1: Absolutely. Well, they are such as creativity and critical thinking, but it's other things like people who are persu- have good persuasive skills, which should be terrific if you are dealing with a client base, emotional intelligence. You can look at things like philosophic inquiry so that when new ideas are mooted, you have those among you who can think very deeply at several layers as to why this may or may not be a good idea. So let's say that I've posed an idea which has one basic tenet to it. But if you have those who are informed by such things as philosophic inquiries, they might take my one idea and say, and do you realise you can also do B and C with that? And further down the track, we might look at D So suddenly you've got a much more fully fledged idea that you can put forward as a new way forward. But when you're in the straight jacket of, of figures and, and, and flow charts and things, and these things are important. Don't I do want to stress that I'm, I'm not in any way suggesting they're not. It is historic. And and time is speeding up. The way we're doing things is speeding up. And we need to be able to lean more into the future.
0: Maggie, this has been a fascinating discussion and it's a fascinating book. And thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast.
1: It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you, Greg.
0: Thanks, Maggie. I've been talking to Maggie Hamilton about her new book, When We Become Strangers, How Loneliness Leaks Into Our Lives and what we can do about it. It's published by Murdoch Books, and it's available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening.